Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Good News in the Neighborhood podcast. This is coming to you from our new church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. I'm Pastor Luke McDonald. I'm so glad that you joined us today. In this feed, you're going to find Sunday sermons from our new church. You'll also find Good News Weekly, which is a collection of content from me, my wife Kristen, Jay Griff, and a whole bunch of other members of our new church. We're so glad that you joined us today. It really helps, as you know, with podcasts, if you share, if you rate, if you leave a review, any of that good stuff helps get the word out. Without further ado, let's get to today's content. If you're ready, say ready. Turn to the book of Acts uh, to chapter 8. We've been going through the book of Acts week by week by week. If you have a Bible, I hope you'll open it. That's where we get uh, the fuel for everything that we want to talk about in the next half an hour. It comes not from uh, some idea that I had or some clever post that I read, but rather we try to get our thoughts and ideas and concepts right out of the Word of God. Uh, Acts chapter 8, the story has started to shift. At the beginning, the first few chapters after Jesus went to heaven, the church couldn't lose. There was preaching. And there was talk about Jesus, and there was people coming to faith. And it was over and over and over, but we have been seeing, if you've been tracking along with us, that the story started to shift, and now increasingly we're finding that there is persecution against the church. And so today we see persecution against the church, the way that the church responds, and various ways of obeying religious ideas. Uh, you hear a lot of talk in the world today about religion and whether is religion even good for our society. Uh, people you'll find if you're on social media, or you're trekking along in secular news in lots of places, people will talk about how what percentage of wars were started by religious people or what percentage of hateful activities come from religious people. And there's this kind of general sense out there that people who have religion are people to be avoided because they're old-fashioned. What I would suggest to you is there's lots of people following religion, which I would define as a man-made set of rules, and not following the true Jesus that we find in this book. And that's where the difference comes. But it's not always easy for people who maybe don't have experience to pull those things apart. And we see in this chapter, chapter 8, which I'm just going to take you through verse by verse in just a second, we see lots of people being obedient to the religious system that they're part of, some for evil and some in a way that blesses God. So I thought we'd start here. That's the title of this message. You can be obedient and still be toxic. You can be obedient and still be toxic. And I thought we'd just start with that question because you hear it often from people. Is religion good for society? Are people who gather in rooms like this, whether Christian or otherwise, do they make society a better or worse place? I brought just a couple of statistics, uh, and I'll throw them up on the screen, that I think helps give just a general sense that as people, uh, you can put that slide up, we don't have to be on our back feet. Uh, just a couple ways. Uh, in America... People who attend church weekly are a higher percentage, much higher percentage, likely to do volunteer work in their community than people who don't. Uh, there's another one here that has to do with how much people give. It's like some crazy, like people who attend church regularly on average give five times as much of their income to charity as people who don't. Another one, uh, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't think there's any chance that 41% of Americans who don't go to church gave to poor people in the last week. So that whole thing feels like a bunch of people lying to me. Uh, I'm just being honest. But... The point being that people who participate in religious activities do, in general, have a higher adherence to behaviors in our society that people would think of as positive. We so often hear of the negative stories or get pushed back on our heels, but we don't have to feel that way. That being said, 
There are people who do terrible things in the name of religion. That brings us to our friend Saul, the key character in the rest of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, and it says this. And Saul approved of his execution. That was back into the chapter we studied last week when we were together digitally, the death of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Pause there. So the church has been growing. We've seen uh, on Pentecost in Acts 2, maybe three, it says 3,000 people converted to the church. Then another uh, in Acts chapter 4, whether that's 5,000 more people or now the number is 5,000. The church had been growing larger and larger and larger. And here it says that this one guy, Saul, it says that after the death of Stephen, the thing turned all of a sudden. Have you ever had that experience in life where at work you went from being the person who could do no wrong to being the person who could do no right? Have you ever been in a relationship where it seemed like it was all going good and then all of a sudden it was all going bad? Have you ever felt like it was like with a snap the whole thing shifted? And the church went from having a great place in Jerusalem to being worthy of, as the text says, Saul, this person, he rose up and led a great persecution. That means causing pain. Well, it's defined here as hostility or ill treatment as a direct consequence of faith in Jesus. Saul sees obedience as destruction of opposing viewpoints. It's important to understand that Saul did not see himself as an instrument of Satan. He saw himself as an instrument of God. He thought, I'm going to make the world better. I'm going to make the community better by destroying these people who believe in Jesus. He thought that he was doing the right thing, the obedient thing, even though he was hurting other people. This, this word there, persecution, like I said a second ago, it's the idea of hostility or ill treatment as a direct consequence of faith in Jesus. So Saul, it says there that he rose up a great persecution. Do you see it in verse 1? And it says there in verse 1 that they were all, that's speaking of the church, that the whole church was scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Jerusalem was the great city in its region, just like Chicago is the great city in our region. Chicago or Rockford, depending um, on how. And uh, just imagine if all of a sudden there were thousands and thousands of people in Chicago that were all following the same religion. And all of a sudden, the, the, pol the police, the, a gang, some kind of aggressive violence rose up towards them. So all of a sudden, none of them are in Chicago anymore. Some of them went north, and some of them went west, and some of them went east, and maybe some of them went in a boat and went across to Michigan, and some of them went down into Indiana, and they were all scattered. Imagine the fear and the intensity of the violence was so much that people said, we got to get out of here. Imagine how bad the persecution would have to be to say, you know what, I'd like to live in Joliet. That's how much I'd like to be safe, or, you know, whatever. This persecution rose up, and the whole church was scattered. It says, do you see it, except the apostles. They were the only ones strong enough of faith. The text makes no comment as to whether it was wrong or right that the people scattered, simply that they scattered. Stephen was buried. And Saul, again, it's making a point that this one person was destroying the church. 
He wasn't just destroying the church by words. Do you see it? It says there in verse 3 that he was entering house after house. He had enough power to just walk into people's house and take men and women and put them in prison for nothing other than faith. That is persecution. Now, we got to be careful because in a culture that increasingly is unfriendly to people of faith, we can sometimes describe as persecution things that are not. Fair? So persecution is not any restriction of your autonomy. Persecution doesn't mean that you can do what, if like someone tells you, no, you can't do whatever you want at any time you want. That is not persecution. Persecution is not the fair consequences of poor behavior. If you uh, leave church today and get on Northwest Highway and drive down to the police station uh, over there uh, off Northwest Highway in Hicks, and if you just like slam your car into the police station and then they come out and arrest you, you can't say you're being persecuted. You're just getting the fair consequences of poor behavior. Persecution is also not the factual rebuttal of ideas or opinions. If you say something and someone else says, well, I think you're wrong, let me tell you why, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're persecuted. Like many words, over time people try to add wider and broader meanings to them that lessens the power of what they actually are. There's lots of people in our world today, I'm sure you see, talking about abuse or bullying, and they're not really true definitions of the word anymore because they get broader and broader. It's important that we understand what persecution actually is. Do you know that there are people all over the world right now who wonder if they're going to be safe coming to church today, not because of anything other than their faith? I mean, we like struggle to get in the room on time just because we are excited to talk to people in the hallway. There are people all over the world that are like, well, no, faith in Jesus might mean prison. Faith in Jesus might mean death. Faith in Jesus might mean this is what was happening here. And so the church scattered. Now, notice that Paul's behavior is not godly. It is not good. He is doing something while holding religious ideas in his head, thinking that he is doing God's work. But do we agree he's not doing God's work? Here's how you know when someone is trying to cause trouble or get involved, that it's destruction, for, uh, it's destruction not cleansing. We're going to see in a minute that Peter, well, in this sermon today, Peter does some cleansing. Here's how you know. What Saul is doing, no part of it is redemptive. So Saul isn't saying, I think you're wrong. Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. Can I try to convince you? He's not trying to help. Do you see it? He's simply causing destruction. It's also punitive, not instruction, not instructive, and it enhances a person, not a particular mission. If you see people getting aggressive in the name of faith with these kind of characteristics, you can know this is not from God, this is evil. Lots of people have, I'm going to make the church better this way. I'm going to make the faith better this way. I'm going to start an Instagram account about this. I'm going to try to make the world better. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make the world better. Just because a person says they're making the world better for God doesn't mean they actually have God's authority. And we need to just put that list back up. We need to make sure that we're paying attention to the kinds of people that we listen to. Oh, I just broke the new stage. Uh, so that... We don't allow ourselves to get involved in things that are causing damage, not help. Okay, the text continues. Now, those who were scattered, you see it? Those who were scattered, they, this is amazing, they went about preaching the word. And 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in this city. We saw first a bad example of religious obedience that was destruction. Here we see Philip as a positive example of obedience as resilience after difficulty. This is so powerful to me that the people are scattered. They're in fear for their life, yet they continued on with the task that they had been given. They continued on with what God had asked them to do, which was to go into all the world. Notice that when God calls us to a task, a wild change in circumstances shouldn't stop it. When God calls us to a task, a wild change in circumstances shouldn't stop it. They could have had, I mean, I think I would have been like, can't you just imagine the people being like, okay, so we're going to leave our home and we're going to go out into the countryside and we're doing that because we're, being, we're in physical danger because of our faith in Jesus. I, I want to get back to the task of preaching, but I'm just going to like take a little sabbatical you know just give it like a couple months i'm just going to take the summer to kind of replenish and recharge before i get back to the task there's something so intensely potent and powerful to me that the moment they left the city they continued on with their task now those who were scattered verse four went about preaching the word notice i talked about this last week notice also that god used this, the persecution that they were under sovereignly to force the church into its mission. The mission that Jesus had given the church wasn't get as many people together in Jerusalem as possible. The mission that God had given those people was to go into the world and preach the gospel. And this is the beauty of God's sovereign plan, is even though the persecution was wrong, God still used it anyway. Even though what happened to you, maybe what happened to me, what happened over there, what happened in the past wasn't right, God can still use it anyway. God used the fact that they were scattered out of Jerusalem to force them to keep on going with their mission. I think it's uh, useful to note that traumatic events like this can shape us, but if we allow them to define us, we can't be honoring to God. If the people in Jerusalem in the first century were living in the 2020s, they would likely have been cautioned and told to spend their, the rest of their lives talking about the traumatic thing that caused them to have to leave their home, not to get past it and through it in Jesus' name and on to the next thing. And I wrote about this a little bit yesterday. I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, that we have to get past being defined by the bad things that happen to us. Sometimes the bad things that happen are because of choices that we made. Sometimes they're because of choices that other people made. Often it's this confusing mix, and some of it's consequence, and some of it's trial. But as long as we allow ourselves to be defined by, I had a bad mother, and so I'm not going to be able to get over it. I, I had this injury. I had this thing. I hung out with somebody this week, uh, somebody I haven't seen for a long time. And he was, was talking about a friend that we both have. And he was talking about how this guy is in his mid-30s, and he's still trying to get over a football injury that he had in his senior year of high school. This happened, like, I think during, like, George Bush's first term, just to give you a sense of how long ago this happened. And when I heard that, I was like, man, like, maybe I, sometimes I do that. But it's so easy to get bogged down and to organize your whole life around things were going good, then this thing happened, 
And now, I mean, what can, what can I be expected to do? I mean, this thing happened. What I guess what I'm saying is that the greater the resilience, the more beautiful the obedience. That these people had every reason to give up on their task. But they kept on with their task, which was preaching God's word. Their task was to keep talking about Jesus. And so they went to a whole new place. And you see, I mean, it's amazing what happens in the text. People are healed. People come to faith. Incredible things happen. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. The place where they went changed because they were willing to be obedient. I'm talking about uh, here for you today. I'm talking about the faith that it takes to write a tithe off of a severance check. I'm talking about the faith that it takes to start a new relationship after that marriage that made you think I could never, ever, ever even try again. I'm talking about waking up feeling that depression that you feel and getting up out of bed and going to do the stuff you need to do for the people that you love anyway. There's always a reason that we can come up with to justify staying in the place of a victim. And I'm not saying that there aren't people that are victimized. What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross and raise from the dead so that we couldn't get over the things that happened. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ and him who love us. It doesn't matter how dark it was, how bad it seems, how impossible it may be. If you keep on with your faith in Jesus Christ, you can conquer and overcome, and God will use for good no matter what has happened in your life. Is there an amen anywhere in the house? And so Philip shows obedience as this was what God wanted me to do, and I'm going to keep on doing it anyway. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon. Next section. And this person had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now pause. When we hear practice magic, we kind of think like, maybe we think like a nerd doing card tricks, like by the beach. But in an ancient world that had a lot more respect for supernatural ideas... These were people of great respect, of incredible esteem, like the great entertainers of our day. So there's this guy, Simon, he practiced magic. And he amazed the people because he was not just saying, like, I'm doing illusions. He was saying, I have great power. And verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, man, uh, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But... When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. I think we understand. Next paragraph. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem, when they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, and they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'll get to that in a second. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, this is the key part, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that Anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See, Simon was converted. The text is clear. He had faith in Jesus. Yet he saw God's power 
as something that he could harness or leverage for personal gain. You see it? Simon was obedient as leverage for personal gain. Uh, we see this often. There's, this is in religion all over our planet that people use increased position. Uh, they try to convince for themselves increased position or payment through the harnessing of God's power. In most cultures around the world, the person who seems capable of helping the rain come on the crops or healing the sick person in your family, they increase for themselves position in the community and payment through the harnessing of God's power. So just imagine this story as it's unfolding. Simon was a person of great weight and power in the culture, not just a person who came around for a minute and had a great song. Like, think of a a Denzel Washington or an Oprah or a Tim Tebow, someone like this who's been around for a while, and a lot of people have a lot of affection for this person. And imagine the enthusiasm when the people who were coming to faith were like, you'll never believe this. You'll never believe this. Yeah, remember him? He came to faith too. And he's kind of watching, Simon is, and he's going along, and all of a sudden he starts to see the power, and he sees the power of the Holy Spirit as they're being prayed for, and he starts to think for them, for himself. Remember that, again, he is a converted follower of Jesus. We see that the text is clear. But he thinks for himself, you know, i got to get myself in on this. And so he offers the only currency that most people know. Simon says, hey, okay, so, Philip, how about, like, I'll give you some money, and you, like, teach me how you do that trick where the Holy Spirit comes, and then it'll be, like, totally cool. What do you think? And he gets intensely rebuked in a second. Because he reveals something about religious obedience, which is that our great temptation often, dear friends, is wanting the gift while ignoring the giver. So often, what we want is the effects of God without wanting God. I want a great marriage. It seems to go better when we go to church. So I want God. I want God to bless my business. I like it seems like things go better when the pastor and those people pray for me. So I want to be at church. I want things to go, I want my kids to obey, and frankly, I could just use an hour off, and this is the only free child care I could find, so I just take the kids over to the church on Sunday morning. Whatever the thing is, so often we want, what do we want? We want the things that God can give while rejecting God himself. That's what Simon is doing here. He's saying, I want the power, but he reflects a complete lack of understanding of what the power is. Is the power of God something that can be transacted by the exchanging of money? Is the power of God that if you just kind of like pay enough, or try enough, you can access? Uh, there was a great moment in the service this morning. I was watching. Uh, I was watching Kim and Josiah and Ash. They were leading, and there was this one moment where Josiah, who, uh, if you don't know him, he's a young guy, just graduated from high school. We're thrilled to have him here in the church. And as he was singing, I saw Kim look over at him and give kind of like a, which I mean, their age is like. Kim was older than I am right now when Josiah was born. So they've got some time between them. And there was this like amazing moment of her looking. I loved it. She looked at him and she was like, wow, what a gift. Wow, something great is happening. When someone who has that musical gift is giving of their gift to God, it creates this experience that is so powerful. But that's not something that can be accessed through money. And so Peter steps right into the middle of this. Back to the text, look with me. And Peter says, so... Peter says to Simon, never afraid to say the right words. Back to verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because 
you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So what Peter seems to be saying is, the gall of bitterness, he's saying Simon is jealous that he's not the head guy anymore, getting all the attention, and that he's stuck in the trap of sin. And then Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come over me. Now, do you see now? So at the beginning of our text today, Saul is destroying the church, believing that he's obeying God. Here, Peter is destroying Simon verbally, like holy smokes, intense what he says to him. Yet this is from God and useful. Peter is showing us here obedience as bold warning from love. In our desire so often to not be the kind of people of faith that hurt or destroy other people, we can start to think over time that then that just means that we're these sort of soft, accepting, never challenge whatever people do is fine. Dear friends, true love, as God teaches us in his word, is not letting people you love do whatever they want. It sometimes requires, do you see it, bold warning. Do you see it? What Peter says, it just like blows me away. He says, may your silver perish with you Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You aren't part of this. Your heart isn't right before God. You need to repent right now of this wickedness and pray that God might forgive you. Because you're bitter and you're stuck. And that's it. You know, like we were always taught to give, like, you know, that Oreo method of feedback. Like you start with something nice, then you kind of like slip the difficult thing in the middle. Then you like say something nice at the end to try to soften it. Hasn't anyone ever been to an HR class in their lives? Yeah. Peter did not follow any of those rules. He's like, fastball, 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 done. Yet, it was what God wanted. It was used at time. We need to grow, many of us, in a willingness and an ability to bring godly confrontation to people around us who are struggling or in sin. So we want to get this right. All in favor of saying, I don't want to be one of those mean Christian types that's always telling everybody they're bad. Who's in favor? Who's with me? Who's trying for that? Okay, most of us and the rest of you aren't voting. Cool, got it. Half and half. We don't want to be those kind of people, so many of us. Yet, we have a responsibility to not just bring love that is acceptance and kindness, but also love that is godly confrontation. How does Peter exemplify that here? I see three things, and we're almost done. One, notice that the, this is, I would say, a key one. Notice that the uh, confrontation is directly to the person in sin. We don't know everything that happened. Obviously, we have the record that the Bible gives us. But notice that there is no record of Peter calling a meeting of 30 people to say, so what's the deal with the Simon guy and what are we going to do about it? And if we're being honest, most of us are pretty good at using confronting words to others about someone who isn't there. And many of us struggle to say the honest truth unvarnished with kindness directly to a person. This is getting towards the sin of gossip, getting towards the sin of slander so often even people are capable of using prayer have you ever been have you ever heard of manipulative prayer request stuff hey i just really we got to pray for lance guys if you could he's just he's really going through a bad time right now 
and I, I, my understanding is that he, Lance, he's drinking again, and he's back at the bars, and he's hanging out with all the wrong people. I just, if you guys could pray for him with me, I'm just really worried about him. I mean, like, let's just, that's really bad behavior to pretend like you're asking for prayer just so you can tell people something. And many of us have been guilty of that, and we're guilty of it. If you want to confront someone in a godly way, go directly to the person. One. Two. Give a clear pathway for repentance. This is key. Do you see? Even though Peter is dropping a huge truth on this Simon the Magician, he says what you need to do is you need to repent. Repent. Every time you see that word in the Bible, it means to turn. It means to change ways. So if the sin was thinking you could get God's power through money, you need to say, God, I'm sorry for thinking I could get your power through money. You need to take whatever steps are available to you. When people are trying to condemn religiously, they say, oh, you're pregnant, out of wedlock? Well, buzz off and don't come back. There's no pathway back. Anytime someone is being confronted in a godly way, it's we need to fix this so that we can get back together in relationship and things can go forward. Godly confrontation always, say always with me, always has a pathway for repentance. Three, he gives, and this is the part that's hard, he gives candor about where rejection will lead. You see, Peter says very clearly, if you don't get this right, it is going to ruin you. If you don't get this right, it is going to ruin you. I wonder how many people around us have never gotten the true message, which is, hey, friend, if you don't kick this habit, your marriage isn't going to survive it. If you don't like, figure this thing out, those kids are going to grow up and feel like you weren't paying attention. If we don't, we think sometimes that we're trying to be nice. And I think, honestly, if we're being fair, sometimes we're just being selfish. Like, it's not that we don't want to tell the other person because we don't want them to be hurt. It's because we don't want to have to go through what it feels like to be rejected. Godly confrontation has those three things to it. It is directly to the person in sin. It has a clear pathway for repentance, and it has candor about where rejection will lead. Broad now, every person who dies without accepting Jesus Christ in faith, they can't go to heaven. And that's not something that we should like, be happy about. It's not something that should make us filled with joy. But we're not loving people around us if we're unwilling to tell them the truth. Again, at the right time, in the right way, when the opportunity presents itself. And so uh, we've made it to the end. Now the band's going to come. We're going to sing in just a minute. But I just want to try to wrap this up in a way that is helpful to you. So we see here in this text two different versions or visions of what it means to obey religion. What does it mean to, for us here, what does it mean to hold the Bible and live it, yet not hurt other people with it? We see in Saul this bad example of using my religious ideas to hurt other people and to, to cause persecution and to cause damage to people who don't think like me. For us here at Good News, this is why like free ice cream is for everybody. You don't have to like tell us what you think about the Koran or gay marriage before we'd love to give you a little ice cream in Jesus' name. It's a very simple way of trying to push our hearts towards we aren't better because we know the truth. Jesus is better, and he gave us the truth. Then we see these positive visions, this idea of continuing on in my mission, being resilient with my obedience. We see this 
idea of being willing to tell the truth in love in the right way. Yet we see in Simon this, I'm going to try to access what I can get from faith without actually understanding what's true and inside the faith. And so I wonder, I just want to, just for a second, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're almost done. We're going to sing one song and then we'll be out the door. But I wonder just like if you could for a second just grab on to um, how does this play out the way that you're living in your workplace with the culture wars that are unfolding around us? How, is, how are these ideas from God's word impacting the way that you try to guide your children in such a difficult and crazy world that we're in? How are we making sure that we want to know the truth but not hurt people because we're certain about things that maybe we shouldn't be certain about, yet at the same time we want to be able to be bold in the right ways and in the right time? It requires so much wisdom. And before we sing, I just want to invite you just to pray to God that he would give you wisdom for how to handle these things. I don't know what the unique situation is for you, but God does and you do. Could you just say, God, could you help me to obey you in the right way? Not in a way that harms or hurts other people, but in a way that draws attention to you, Lord. If, if, you're, if you're a person who struggles to speak up, maybe you could ask God to give you courage. If you're a person who struggles to calm down, Maybe you could ask God to help you choose the right times in the right ways. If it's hard not to get sidetracked with political stuff or stuff that feels like the gospel, but maybe it isn't, maybe you could ask God for clarity there. We're going to sing in just a second. Why don't you take 60 seconds? Why don't you ask God for his wisdom to help you? Thanks so much for joining us today. Hope you were blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to follow along with us more, you can find us on Instagram at Good News in the Neighborhood. You can find us on Facebook at the same name. You can find us at www.goodnewsintheneighborhood.org. If there's anything that we can do, pray for you, help you in any way, please find us at that website and leave a prayer request. We'd love to bless you. And uh, until we see you again next time, this is Good News. Good News.